You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, tech stocks, they take a hit. The latest inflation print spooking risk on sentiment. We'll get the sector outlook. Plus, we'll get the outlook for M&A as the Justice Department eyes Adobe's $20 billion bid for Figma. And on the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we'll take a look at why cybersecurity is more important now than ever. All that and so much more coming up. Broadly, investors today we were shunning risk amid fears of that impact of higher rates. However, Kate Moore of BlackRock speaking earlier today to our John Ferris. See some silver linings, Caro, for the tech sector. There was a decent amount of overhiring um, across tech and in software and, and parts of semis. And we've seen those companies get out ahead of the market in terms of uh, announcing layoffs. So that's been really productive. And so I expect these companies are going to weather this economic and policy storm pretty well. Um, what I've been really encouraged with is, is how honest the guidance was during reporting fourth quarter. Okay. Encouragement with certain moves coming from the tech sector. Let's dig in with Nancy Tangler. You know her, of course, Laffer Tangler Investments. She, of course, heading over there, the CEO role, the CIO role. Nancy, it is great as always to have some time with you. So do you agree there with the BlackRock view that actually companies in technology space are taking the action necessary? I do. Thanks for having me, Caroline and Ed. Um, love the new show. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I do. I think um, we, we felt that way for a while. We were arguing in the fourth quarter that it was time to start adding risk back into your portfolio via tech and consumer discretionary. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that these companies, the ones that we own uh, and like, are the ones they're delivering strong beats every quarter of last year, raising guidance, and they're still not um, feeling the love from Wall Street. Uh, so, so we like the names that are, are reliable earnings growers with strong management teams and yeah, I mean, technology and energy are the two most productive sectors on a revenue per employee basis. And if you just look at it, just use Apple as an example, they're at, per employee, it's $550,000 in revenue versus the rest in the market, $140,000. So they're already very productive companies. And yeah, some of them got very fat and they've, and they've had to, to shed uh, employees. And I think that's a good thing uh, for the bottom line. But the two companies that we like the most uh, haven't had to do that because they they managed through the pandemic pretty well. Yeah. 
Nancy, I want to get to some of those specific names, but I, I do feel like there's energy in this idea around a more hawkish Fed, and it's really relevant to the technology sector. You know, PCE Friday was the latest of a series of data points and Fed speak that kind of changed the mindset, it seems like, at least in the short term. Do, do you agree with that? Well, Ed, I, I've been pretty critical of the Fed, and I, and I think I understand why the market hasn't believed uh, what they said. Um, th these are, you know, we've, we've said we thought that inflation peaked in June, that it rises mostly symmetrically and on the same on the way down, but it's never linear. So, you know, the market's paying such close attention to numbers that ultimately get revised, and they're not looking so much at the trends. So I see this as an opportunity to step in and continue to buy these names, because as soon as the market market stops trading on interest rate fears and starts trading on the fundamentals, these names are going to be, you're going to be well positioned for the next three to five years, which is our investing time horizon. Nancy, you, uh, you teased us with two specific names that you're excited about. Would you care to share a little bit more about what they are? Yeah, so I'm uh, I, I'm actually hiding out at Incline Village trying to finish my book. But um, so, <laughs> oh, teasing I, I'm, a book as well. Wow. No end of teasing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so the two names that we like the most. One just reported, and of course, it has had a nice run from the report. But that's Palo Alto Network. So, what we have said in our portfolios is we want to own old economy companies that are embracing the digital and AI revolution, and then the, the suppliers of um, of those tools. And so Palo Alto is a cloud uh, cybersecurity company. They beat on revs. They beat on bill billings. They, um, their next-gen security uh, software is up 63%. Gross margins beat. I mean, there's, there's nothing not to like about this company and the report. So that's one. And then the other is a neighbor of yours, uh, ServiceNow. Bill McDermott is by far the best CEO in corporate America, in my view. Mm. They turned in an excellent quarter. They beat and they raised. And their margins are holding up very nicely. So solution on the cloud, Palo Alto's cybersecurity solution, uh, and, and I think both those names are members of our 12 Best Ideas portfolio. Oh, shout out for Bill, who's joined the show many a time. Talk to us a little bit about the AI hype, Nancy, and whether or not you really feel it will ultimately change every industry. I do think so, Caroline. Um, however, you know, it's we're, we're early innings. One of my colleagues, uh, Chat GPT, me, and I learned a lot of things about myself that I didn't know. So there, there are problems, right? And then there's the creepy factor. But if you look at a company like Deer, uh, they are using AI to target um, fertilizing a single seed, and this this becomes very important as young people don't want to become farmers, as we're hitting up against a structural labor shortage in this country. I really do believe I'm the last baby boomer still working. Um, the, the people that retired are not coming back. And so I think we have to solve our problems with technology. And many companies are doing it simplistically, like a public storage that allows clients to sign up and access their uh, mm. storage locker without any human contact, uh, all the way to Asylum, which is correcting water infrastructure pro problems digitally from a central area. And, that, and it's one and a half times more profitable. So I do I do think it's real. I think AI uh, is, as I said, early uh, in the in the innings, and that's also why we like, um, you know, a name like Microsoft. That's also in our 12 best ideas portfolio. They sort of span the gamut of cloud and AI, and I think you yeah. have to be exposed. Um, so we're, we're looking for opportunities all the time. Nancy, always owning your experience, not what generation you were born in. Just tell us a little bit, lastly, about where you look now 
we've all been sort of perhaps trading off earnings. We're now looking towards, you know, margins, a focus on efficiency. What are the next key words, phrases, or data points you're going to be trading off? So I, I do think inflation is still um, the overriding concern that the market has, that the Fed let it go for too long. Uh, and, you know, you know this, uh, Ed, being a, a Californian, you know, you get a controlled burn and it can easily turn into a wildfire. And that's really what we saw. And so now the question is, can they can they rein it back in? I think the leading indicators that we look at indicate they can. Uh, I also think the leading indicators indicate we're going to go into a mild recession. And so those are the key words that the algos and the hedge funds are going to be trading off. And we're going to use those, that volatility as an opportunity to add to holdings in our portfolio. So smart, always using tech, whether it's for investment or investing in tech. Nancy Tangler, we thank her. Lafa Tangler Investments. Taking some time out of writing a book, Ed, there. <laughs> yeah, up in Incline Village of all places. Um, <laughs> that's one place I'd love to be this weekend. But she makes the same point that guess all week have made, that you want to be positioned with those names who are best placed to take advantage, mm. not necessarily around hype with AI, but around the investment that's to come when companies need to have access to those tools. And it's interesting as to whether we continue to see themes you know there's been these themes borne out whether you're liking Palo Alto whether you're liking Nvidia there's also been the themes on the downside haven't there and I feel each earnings season brings this whether we can just broad brush retail as one sector where we can dig into the likes of e-commerce players all having this sort of sticking point that we've seen this week I mean let's just reflect for a moment on some of the earnings coming from the likes of eBay the sell-off that we saw so painful in Wayfair Etsy actually outperformed on the day of its numbers and actually so it showed some sort of growth. But again, there was some concerns about its forward-looking guidance. And I wonder what we'll see from like more the bricks and mortar stores next week and where they're managing to lean into digital, whether e-commerce is just a concern there too. Yeah, and, and our colleagues at Bloomberg News have kind of crunched the numbers at the index of on online retailers about how yeah. far off we are from the pandemic highs. What those names all have in common is a drop-off in activity. That's the concern that actually their end users, consumers, have stopped spending and the outlook's murky as well. There was really very few glimmers of hope. But we all bought too much online. We did our spending on Wayfair. We We're yeah. still deciding that it's about experiences, it's about getting on flights, it's going out to various places in California. California and visiting you, Ed, is the pendulum just swinging somewhat and are we overreacting to it? Not so fast Adobe. The Justice Department is preparing a suit to try and block Adobe's $20 billion purchase of Figma, according to sources. It could come as soon as next month. This is a big deal. Literally. You likely know Adobe tools like Photoshop or Premiere for video editing. Figma is known as software for designing app or website interfaces. It's trounced Adobe's competing XD products in recent years. Now, buying Figma is a big bet by Adobe that creative work is going to be important for small businesses and everyday users on the web. And that's a market Figma's rapidly controlling. Adobe made multiple attempts to buy Figma in 2020 and 2021. And ultimately, they sealed the deal with the price tag that was double Figma's then valuation, a pretty premium. Now, an antitrust suit makes the deal a little more shaky, and it's Adobe's most serious spat with antitrust regulators since the 90s. One to watch. 
story of the day, one of the stories of the week, Caroline, looking at the shares of Adobe this Friday as well, down almost 8%, but it was the biggest drop since September. You know, we, you and I have been talking for 24 hours, right, about the idea that sort of uh, some regulator somewhere looking at this deal wasn't surprising, but how quickly the DOJ moved was. And certainly when I was reading the sell side notes early this morning, there's a little bit of jitters out there about the risk of Adobe not being able to seal a deal with Figma. Yeah, and isn't it kind of ironic that the shares of Adobe fell so hard when we first learned about the deal? People felt they were overpaying, and now they're worried about the time, the investment, the focus that they've given. Let's dig into some of maybe the arbitrage that can be played in this current environment, Bloomberg's intelligence. Jennifer Ree is with us, who has been on all day relentlessly, bringing your analysis to now the probabilities we have to decide mm -hmm. of whether this gets through or not. I suppose we're not surprised that the U.S. administration once again is eyeing such a deal. You know, that's right. This is The timing is really tough for Adobe. You know, we have a really aggressive administration right now when it comes to M&A and particularly tech companies. And particularly a deal like this where you see what looks like an incumbent buying a scrappier, newer kind of nascent startup. Really, one that's really rivaling it, it and could become a bigger competitor in the future. So it sort of looks like a defensive deal where it's just trying to take competition out of the market. And there's particular sensitivity to that. So, you know, the thing is about probabilities, it's really hard once the DOJ sues to really understand what's going to happen in that trial. These cases can be hard for the DOJ to win, and it hasn't had such a great track record. But in this case, we'll, we'll have to see how the evidence shakes out, because I think at least superficially, it looks like the DOJ may have a decent case here. But remind us of that track record of late. Right. Well, the thing is, the DOJ and FTC have both decided, look, we're going to bring the tough deals. We're going to challenge the tough deals. In the past, they really would sue those deals where they were pretty sure they could win, the evidence is sort of stacked in their favor, they're going to go into court and it's going to be easy for them. But they've said, look, this hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. We've allowed too much consolidation, particularly big tech companies buying up small, scrappy competitors. We regret some of these deals we've cleared in the past, like Facebook and Instagram or, or Google, YouTube or DoubleClick. And we have, to be, we have to be more careful about this. And we have to go take these cases to court even if they're tough. And when they do that, they're going to lose some. So the DOJ recently lost a challenge in court to stop United Healthcare from buying change. That was one deal that where it had a tough time. Uh, the FTC recently lost its challenge to Meta trying to buy a small virtual reality company called Within. Um, they have had successes, not so much in through litigating, but through getting the companies to abandon the deal mm. prior to getting to that final decision by a judge. I think it's important to point out as well, Jennifer Wright, that according to sources, you know, this is what the DOJ is considering. One source said that, that this could happen as soon as next month. Meetings between the DOJ and, and Adobe have been taking place. Adobe issued us this statement. We are engaged in constructive and cooperative discussions with regulators in the US, UK and EU. I wanted to bring that up because actually not just to get Adobe's side of the story across, but it raises a point that actually globally they're going to have to pass a number of tests anyway. I wonder, could you distill for our audience what that test is likely to be. It seems to center around XD, Adobe's mm -hmm. kind of existing offering. 
That's right. I mean, XD looks like it's a competitor to Figma's offering. And in fact, you know, there's been a lot of news about the fact that Figma's taking customers from Adobe, and that's pure competition in the market. Um, right now, the regulators tend to be really coordinated. So there's a lot of discussion between the Federal Trade Commission, the European Commission, the regulators in the UK, and they tend to be pretty aligned about being aggressive with big tech. So to the extent that Adobe can work out some sort of settlement or compromise uh, that would allow this deal to clear, it's going to have to get all three of those regulators to come together to agree to that. Maybe it would be the divestment of Adobe XD. You know, Possibly that would fix the issue. But I'm not so sure that that will be enough, particularly for the U.S. and, and for the U.K. regulators who might also be concerned about the possibility that Figma could grow into a bigger competitor to Adobe in the future beyond just the XD product. The other deal we're tracking, of course, at the moment is, is Microsoft Activision. Mm -hmm. You're our senior analyst for, for antitrust litigation. Could you draw on your experience for us? How is this environment compared to those you've seen in the past? It seems really tough to pull off a big piece of tech M&A right now. It is really tough. I mean, all of these tech deals are going to get a lot of scrutiny by the FTC and DOJ. And the Microsoft Activision deal is just a perfect example of how things have changed. I mean, five or 10 years ago, that deal, which we call a vertical deal, because the companies don't really compete head on. They're just at different levels of the supply chain uh, for video game making, creation, and for video game distribution, which would be the Microsoft piece with its consoles and its subscription service. That kind of deal years ago was pretty much a shoe-in. Uh, sometimes the companies would have to agree to behavioral conditions to get the deal to clear, but it was pretty much a given that that's the route it was going to go. Today, we have this challenge by the FTC yes. already and possibly by the UK and Europe as well. Bloomberg Intelligence's January. Thank you so much for joining us late on a Friday. Thank top, you. top story this week. We're grateful for your analysis. And Caroline, as we always do, we went to our audience and said, what do you make of this? What do you make of M&A right now for tech? And, you know, the answers are kind of consistent with what we've heard. The clamp down underway. I mean, front and centre, we know that this isn't, as we have just saying, a US theme. This is a European theme. This is a UK theme. This is across the spectrum, whether it's Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard, whether it's Adobe. And it feels as though our audience are pretty much well aware of it. It's just one step in a multi-step process, and we'll continue to track it. Now, coming up, what's new in the world of AI? A clamp down on chat GPT from China to Wall Street. That's all in our Talking Tech next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time now for Talking Tech. China will introduce rules to govern the use of AI across a swath of industries in an effort to regulate emergent spheres as ChatGPT fever sweeps the world's second largest economy. The government says it will push for the safe and controllable application of AI services, which it considers a strategic industry and will continue to monitor its evolution over the longer term to gain a better understanding of the ethical concerns around AI. And sticking with AI, Meta just introduced a research tool for building AI-based chatbots and other products seeking to create a buzz for its own technology and compete with Google and Microsoft. The tool, Llama, believe it or not, is Meta's latest entry into the realm of large language models, which CEO Mark Zuckerberg says, quote, have shown a lot of promise in generating text, having conversations, summarizing written material and more complicated tasks like solving math theorems or predicting protein structures. And back in the US, a growing amount of global investment banks are clamping down on chat GPT, particularly on Wall Street. Bank of America, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs Group and Wells Fargo are among lenders that have recently banned use of the chatbot, with Bank of America telling employees that chat GPT and open AI tools are prohibited from business use, that according to sources. This follows earlier reports that JP Morgan had implemented equivalent measures this week. And I find this so interesting, Caroline. It goes back to what NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang told Ariane King earlier this week, which is basically ChatGPT is great. The momentum around it is, in, is great. But when business needs a tool, they don't need ChatGPT. They need something appropriate, something that, that is custom for them. And they also don't need the risk of people sharing internal information that then suddenly gets spit up in another mm. inquiry down the line. There was reporting from other news sources that Amazon had taken a, a very similar view. Some of the general yeah. counsels there worried about the fact that certain turns of phrases, uh, certain types of conversation looked remarkably like rather relatively sensitive information of theirs. So I'm sure that there is trying to be this clamping down on this software. And we've talked about it, haven't we? The cyber risk that is built in to this large language models, this generative AI. It's always exciting, but I'm sure companies want to keep a rein on it. Yeah, and a content risk as well. We've reported about the inaccuracies that some of these AI tools are generating. Think about Bard's launch week, right? Yeah. And, and how difficult that was for Alphabet shares because of an inaccuracy which was brought to light. So it's a real risk on the content side as well. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. 
and Ahmed Ludlow in San Francisco. And Carrie, this bit's me because I want to take a look at cryptocurrencies, right? It's been an interesting week for risk assets in particular. And the point I would make here is these are the four biggest um, tokens by market value globally, right? And what we see actually, particularly in Bitcoin's case, is a relatively high degree of correlation between, for example, the NASDAQ 100 and Bitcoin. And, you know, on the week, relatively substantive declines on Bitcoin, Ether, Binance. Um, and, you know, what we're reading on the Bloomberg Terminal, particularly good piece from Vildana, our colleague on the cross-asset team, about a bit of a liquidity crunch. At times yeah. of crisis, that's what the market's starting to see now. And as you and I discussed on Twitter Spaces earlier, right, the key thing about the SBF FTX developments, while nothing to do with market mechanics, it still impacts the psychology of this market. So I thought that was really interesting to look at how these cryptocurrencies have behaved in a week where risk assets are taking on board the future outlook for the Fed. And maybe Maybe we can try to draw some kind of conclusion going forward. Let's draw more conclusions with Jill Gunter, Espresso Systems Chief Strategy Officer, and dig in there a little bit about the correlations. Because actually, we'd started to see maybe a movement away, the fact that crypto had been relatively well bid while tech stocks had still been under some pressure. Crypto has actually performed very robustly over the course of the year so far, this week notwithstanding, perhaps. Um, I think it's taken a lot of people in the industry, both asset allocators and also builders, by surprise. And sort of a running joke in the industry has become, what bear market? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it almost feels like we deserved much worse in terms of price action. So yeah, I would say overall, I think crypto has been very well bid um, uh, over the course of the start of this year, particularly when you take into account the hangover psychologically, as you mentioned, from, of course, the FTX fallout at the end of last year, but also in the United States, the spate of regulatory pressure yes. that the industry has been coming under over the last several weeks. And we've heard time and time again, some of the frustration around that is a lot of it's backward looking, a lot of it's regulation by enforcement. Jill, when you're trying to build, when you are creating what Espresso Systems is all about, the infrastructure, how to transact, how to interact online, do you feel you've got enough guidance? I would say yes and no. You know, I think we tend to talk about uh, when we're talking in the media about the government as sort of one monolith, and that's just not the case. I think you'll find that you know certain agencies and certain departments within the U.S. government uh, are very proactive in terms of being hands-on, working directly with builders. I would say the Treasury Department in particular has done a really good job of of creating clear guidance and and being very friendly to to builders and innovators. Um, um, I would say that other areas, though, of the U.S. government have been much more opaque uh, in terms of what they want out of the industry. Um, and it has been more regulation by enforcement, and that does create challenges. But that's just the U.S. government. You know, one of the, the beautiful things, but also challenging things about cryptocurrency, of course, is that it's highly global. And so, you know, it's a it's a much larger chess game than just that. Joel, you mentioned this week kind of being an outlier. Uh, based on performance of different digital assets so far this year. But you, you probably heard me talking about this idea in the market that that there's some caution which is impacting liquidity or, or in other words you know the kind of negative headlines that keep on rolling around this industry are you know kind of directly um, inducing a liquidity crunch. Is that something that you're seeing? 
It is a concern, I would say. Um, but again, I think that for most people in the industry, it's been actually a pleasant surprise of how much liquidity is still sloshing around in the market. Uh, again, following the really serious fallout at the end of last year. Um, and so I would say it, it is a concern and certainly has been over the course of this week. And, you know, especially as people are keeping an eye on what the Fed is doing and as risk assets trade down more broadly, um, it is it is on people's minds, but at least from where I'm sitting, uh, less so than I might have expected. And I think a part of that is also uh, a lot of people in this market, a lot of both investors in this market, as well as builders in this market, tend to take a longer term outlook and play less on the short term time horizons of weeks to months. And I think that there's a lot to be bullish about and, and therefore a lot that's keeping liquidity uh, in crypto assets and in the system um, from a Again, that much longer, longer term perspective. With that in mind, you talked there about there being a lot to be bullish about. What are those things? You know, I remember on a daily basis referring to Bitcoin as an inflation hedge, and we don't say that as much anymore. But but I wonder what are the underlying factors that, that long term investors in different digital assets consider? It's honestly, a lot of it is deep in the weeds infrastructure uh, building that's happening. So just this week, Coinbase came out and announced that they were working on their own version of a layer two scaling solution for Ethereum. And so you can think of this as um, you know a, a layer that would sit on top of Ethereum that would make uh, the underlying protocol more accessible, more scalable, lower fees, faster throughput, all of these complaints that users and developers have had for years about the issues in the space that are keeping it from being actually useful for mainstream applications outside of things like the inflation hedge story that, that the industry has been hanging its hat on for real use cases along the lines of payments and real financial infrastructure. Um, and so it's it's been a lot of, again, deep in the weeds sort of technical development, R&D. It's not the kind of stuff, candidly, that's, that's making headlines uh, every day, but yeah. when you're in those weeds, it, it can feel very promising and very bullish. And a lot of investors in the space do spend time uh, deep down those rabbit holes as well. And you had been one of those investors and came across to sort of be one of those builders and those focus points for infrastructure. Tell us then what headlines should be being written. What is the decentralized application that we're going to be is it payment is it storage is it where does it end up being practical in our everyday do you think most swiftly yeah, well, I mean, to answer your first question in terms of the headlines that, that should be being written, I think that this layer two story around Ethereum scaling, uh, again, that means lowering fees for end users, and that means faster transaction rates, higher throughput, all of these types of things. That is a major story that I think that should be written. Um, of course, there was a lot of attention last year to the upgrade of Ethereum to mm. move it from uh, being proof of work, which, of course, was very computationally intensive and also very bad for the environment. I think that if part of Ethereum's bid over the course of uh, the beginning part of this year has actually been following on from, again, that sort of deep in the weeds infrastructure work. And I think we've yet to 
to see, Caroline, what applications will end up coming of this. We're really in like an infrastructure building phase for the industry um, as opposed to an application building phase as mm -hmm. of right now. But I, I personally am very bullish on the payments use case. It's been sort of the holy grail of cryptocurrency, even going back to Bitcoin. That was sort of, you know, the original vision of Bitcoin that we've yet to see come to fruition. But looking around at the infrastructure being built, I really do think it's happening this time. Joe, I, I, really interesting that you end on infrastructure. There was a headline that crossed the Bloomberg terminal this Friday that, that caught my eye coincidentally about Puerto Rico giving uh, basically tax support, tax breaks for blockchain developers. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is that we're trying to gauge Caroline and I about how supportive the United States is as a place to foster the underlying technology, as a regulatory environment. And all the headlines this week, and with that in mind, what's your assessment about the health of this industry in America right now? I'll be honest, I think it's I think it's a challenge for the United States, and I think that it's a challenge that the folks in DC are doing well to start paying attention to. And I, I say that in the present tense because I think many of them are. Um, one of our investors, Electric Capital, they put out a developer report every year. And overwhelmingly, what was notable to me on this developer report this year was the exodus of developers who are domiciled in the United States versus in other parts of the world over the last two to three years. And I think a lot of that does come down to the regulatory environment here. But, you know, there are those of us who still feel strongly about being U.S. domiciled companies, about building here, uh, despite, you know, the, the headwinds that that brings to us, and about working directly with regulators and policymakers and, and even enforcement officers uh, in Washington to make sure that we're building things right. There are still many of us, but it, it hasn't been easy, and it, it does only seem to be getting harder. But again, kudos to those in Washington who are paying attention to this dynamic and are fighting to keep the innovation onshore in the U.S. And kudos to you for coming and telling us about it, those sorts of relationships. We thank you. Espresso Systems Chief Strategy Officer Jill Gunter was love having her on the show. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Coming up, it's been one year since the start of the war in Ukraine. We'll come back on the state of cyber warfare among all of this with cybersecurity firm Arctic Wolf. That's next, and this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. 
at Stiefel. It's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Today, it marks one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the war, well, underway, isn't only on the ground, but also in cyber warfare. Our next guest says, look, Russia is likely to continue carrying out more targeted cyber attacks against the EU countries in particular and companies with the goal of gathering threat intelligence, damaging those companies. Joining us now, Nick Schneider, CEO of cybersecurity firm Arctic Wolf. Nick, talk us through your thinking. How do we anticipate these sorts of attacks will take place? Yeah, I think it'll be, uh, you know, steady and over time here. What we saw at the beginning of the conflict uh, was that Russia, Ukraine and and neighboring countries kind of pointed their gaze at each other and and away from European countries and and, uh, companies and companies in the U.S. And and what we're starting to see now after what was a bit of a lull in 2022 is a resurgence of activity here in 2023 as uh, folks start to uh, use their time and energy and resources on targeting, you know, both European companies uh, and U.S. companies in kind as they continue to uh, work on and evolve their um, uh, their strategy in, in, in region. I think what's interesting for me, Nick, is I know the activity specifically around the war in Ukraine uh, was high at the beginning of the year and was present. But actually, there is some data suggesting that ransomware attacks originating from Russia in particular have decreased. Why is that? Yeah, I think um, right now they're focused primarily on uh, their defenses with the Ukraine. Uh, and what they need to do to win uh, their their current uh, you know war and and what I think we're seeing uh, as it relates to businesses is is an increase and I think the reason for that uh, is because while a lot of the nation state you know actors are focused on quite frankly each other uh, we're seeing that you know the smash and grab you know type bad, bad actors uh, you know have to find a way to you know make money and and have to find a way to you know support their uh, you know, livelihood. And they're doing so through uh, a resurgence of activity, you know, into the European markets and the U.S. markets. And, and we're seeing that both, you know, through our core business uh, in in companies uh, trying to find ways to bolster their, you know, security defenses and their secur- security posture, but also in, you know, activity as it relates to, you know, incident incidents and incident response. Nick, any types of companies in particular where the vulnerabilities are most acute or the worries are most pernicious? I mean, assuming it's utilities, energy companies, but where else might not we think of? Yeah, utilities, energies companies, you know, healthcare organizations, uh, financial institutions. You know, unfortunately, um, we're seeing activity really across the board, and it's for a variety of different reasons. Uh, and those reasons are, you know, sometimes unknown until, you know, after the fact. But 
Uh, I really don't think that there's any you know industry uh, or or business that's immune to you know the threat of cyber activity or, or cyber warfare. Um, and you know us as a business at Arctic Wolf, you know our whole business is around ensuring that we can you know end cyber risk for our customers and, and help to uh, stabilize the environment for the market wholesale. One of the tools that the United States um, has utilized in conjunction with allies is sanctions. And those have been largely to disrupt the movement of money across borders. Uh, but I wonder how do sanctions fit into the cybersecurity realm, Nick? Yeah, I don't think it plays uh, as strong of a role, just given the nature of the way in which ransomware and, and these bad actors you know, make their, their money. Uh, a lot of this is being done uh, through ransomware payments, you know, through uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, and unfortunately, there aren't, you know, strong mechanisms to, you know, be able to track that down, you know, and or place, you know, sanctions and things like that against it. Nick, this might be a tough question, and forgive me if it's out the remit, but one of the stories really focused on when this first erupted was, of course, the human side of all of this, and in many ways, also the talent side. In particular, Ukraine, phenomenal developers, companies had big teams there in many instances. What about the talent flow out of Russia? Have, have we seen the really keen developers and some of those that are incredibly good at cyber hacking as well? Are they still there? Are they present? Have any left? Yeah, I, I think certainly uh, we've seen evidence that quite a few uh, have left uh, and they're starting to form you know, alliances with other folks that they might have known uh, either in Russia or otherwise as, as part of a you know, previous group. Um, and, and certainly, I think that's also why we're starting to see uh, changes in the way in which, um, you know, the countries are, are, are operating, you know, with or against each other. Uh, so there, there's in some ways a, a talent shortage uh, for the, the nation states as it revolves uh, around cyber, both on the defensive and on the offensive. Uh, and I think, you know, as those groups kind of start to reemerge and as they start to get back together, uh, we're going to see that they're, you know, leveraged both as part of, uh, you know, what's happening with the nation states, but we're also going to see that they, uh, you know, begin to operationalize and, and get stronger uh, with regard to, um, you know, their their day to day, which is to, you, you know, uh, attack European and, and U.S. entities. Nick Schneider, Arctic Wolf CEO, thank you for joining us. It does mark one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and cybersecurity played such a big role in headlines, role in our coverage of that war. So thank you for your time. back to, well, this week's big story on the Hill in the world of technology, Section 230. We're joined now by Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights over at the Free Press. It's an advocacy group that filed one of the amicus briefs in the Google versus Gonzalez case, and you also testified before Congress on the subject previously, Nora. The arguments have been made as to perhaps why, from technology's perspective, it would be wrong to overdo and throw out Section 230 and the protections. But is there nuance to that? Is there ways in which it can be more targeted, more directed, so that it can help push back on hate speech, at least, and some of the harassment? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, what's been difficult about the case this week is that the facts were so tragic. Mm. You know, the case stemmed from the killing of a young college student uh, who was traveling abroad, and their family feels that 
YouTube and by extension Google um, are really aiding and abetting terrorists by recommending terrorist related content because their child was killed by ISIS. Those are some of the worst facts, and the court has really struggled to grapple this week with where liability should rest. Mm. Google argued that it is not liable because it is shielded from suit by Section 230. Um, that protects them, they are arguing. And of course, the family then feels like Google should be liable because it makes recommendations, yeah. that its algorithms are giving people content. But it's the first time the court has heard or considered Section 230. And it's really, when you take a step back, a monumental case in that way. I mean, for almost three hours, the court wrestled with this question. Um, and I don't know how far they got, but they really tried to consider the distinction, if any, between recommending content versus publishing content. Yeah. yeah, and it felt that they were very aware and voiced it that they are not technology experts. Ultimately, it felt, dare I say it to generalize, sort of the wrong case for them to be deciding this, because mm -hmm. they do want to reassess Section 230, particularly some of the right-leaning justices. Talk to us about whether it can be in any way partly updated Section 230 in the right way from your perspective. Mm, mm, great question. You know, the, the justices really covered a wide range of things. Uh, I would say they, they kind of, the full gamut was from caution to confusion, as you say, about the complexities here and the complexities of ruling on something, you know, the potential liability for platforms. Ultimately, I think they, there seemed to be a recognition from the court that it might not be the right place, the best place to do the balancing and the trade offs that would be required from amending Section 230. And that, that modification, if happening at all, needs to come from somewhere else. So that's something that Free Press right. has been incredibly active on. You know, Nora, I'm so glad that Caroline asked that question, because for me, the other part of it is that it's not necessarily who should be considering this. What I'm hearing, you know, talking to social media companies, talking also to, you know, different parties to what's going on, is that where do we ask the right questions? And what we're not hearing is what are the technological solutions? In other words, what is it that everyone wants to fix this issue? Well, everyone loves to debate Section 230, as we know, because of the, the last week. Um, some people think that there's a kind of blunt solution. Doing away with it altogether could solve some of the problems on the Internet. I just don't think that's the case. Section 230 is a foundational and necessary law for a few reasons. Frankly, it lowers barriers to people sharing their own content online. Without it, platforms would be forced to vet any content that people are posting because, of course, they wouldn't want to then be liable for everything that their users say and do. I think that the test right now should not be whether a platform filters yes. or recommends content. It needs to be whether platforms have actual knowledge of the grievous harms caused by content on their platforms. Right. Nora Benavidez, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at the Free Press. Thank you. Right. That does it, Caro, for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. I know, I'm sad too. <laughs> it was quite a serious way in which to enter the show, but it's a serious topic. We're going to keep on digging into it. But I hope you have perhaps a more lighthearted weekend ahead of you. But maybe tune in, if you can, to our podcast. You can find it on the terminal. You can go online on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeart. Wishing you a wonderful weekend, Ed. Without the wine, I hear that's up for Lent. You too.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.